0: And welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. If you enjoy the podcast today, please follow me on my website, narctroopers.com, N-A-R-C-T-R-O-O-P-E-R-S.com, where you will find a long list of podcasts such as this, along with articles that I have written, a video blog, and merchandise. Today's topic is the seduction, the glittery shimmering mirage. We all know what a mirage is. It's something that's not real. We think we see it. It's that water, that oasis in the middle of the desert. It's that wonderful thing. It's, it's a hotel in Las Vegas. But a mirage is not real. And this is a story about magical thinking, idealization, imprinting, grandiosity and entitlement, revision of history, that's a thing, pity plays, blame shifting, and triangulation. So let's take a look behind the narcissist's masterful yet false seduction Things are not always what they seem. Truer words were never spoken when describing the seduction phase in the narcissistic cycle of abuse. We all know what that is, right? Idealization or infatuation, where they meet their new target and, ah, this is the one. This is the answer to everything, their perfect, shiny, new, new toy. Then comes devaluation where their bubble is burst, and they start picking at you, finding every fault with contempt, with that smirk, sometimes with some very subtly veiled, passive-aggressive little jabs at you. And then it ends with the third part of the cycle, which is the discard. If you don't get away first, then the discard will come. And that is a... uh, Really horrific thing. So let's talk about this, this first phase of the seduction, which is the infatuation or idealization period, as it's more commonly referred to. Uh, it's also called the golden period. This is when the charismatic and charming narcissist in shining armor dismounts his steed, takes your hand, mesmerizes you with eyes that reflect every hope and secret desire you ever held close to your heart, and he sweeps you away with a passion unlike anything you've ever dreamed of. It moves your soul. It flows with your energy, and it leaves you thunderstruck, gobsmacked, blown away. The reason that your seduction is so swift, powerful, and almost supernatural, is that it is the same dynamic that happens when the spider injects its victim. Yep, the spider, when it injects its victim with poison that paralyzes its prey, so it cannot escape. It's that same dynamic. The narcissist also does this, so that you are so heels over your head in bed and in love that you just pour copious amounts of their life-sustaining fuel that they have to have just all over them. It's just gushing and flowing all over them. When every time that you squeal in delight, laugh at their humor, hang on to every precious word they speak, adore them, praise them, crave them, Laugh and giggle and throw back your head. It feeds them, and it makes them feel alive and whole and happy and powerful. Every time you tell them that they are the best, it only serves to confirm what they already know. They are special, above the law. Rules aren't made for them. They're entitled, powerful, and they are the absolute best at everything that they do. They are the best artist, the best lover, the best helper, the best chef, the best handyman, the best everything. They even make the best avocado toast. Yep, yep, I know all about that one. And they hunger for the people around them to constantly be blown away with how over-the-top amazing, sweet, kind, thoughtful, helpful, and just adorably irresistible that they are. So in addition to this powerful magic of the seduction, something called imprinting happens. And it occurs in the most insidious ways, like the lamb being prepared for the slaughter, who just thinks she's going on a routine walk in the meadow. Huh? Eh, That's not what's happening. They will repeat Actions and rituals to encode them in your brain and deep in your psyche. It is like brainwashing in the way they connect themselves to you and encourage a kind of learned helplessness, which they will, of course, blame you for later. Yeah, happened to me. The way they always slide their hand under your lower back when they prepare for lovemaking the way certain music is always played as a background for every moment, every moment. I remember my honeymoon, Paris, Wilco. Oh my gosh, I can't listen to Wilco now. It's a super trigger. <laughs> Ruin that forever. Um, just the way that they use words to brand you as their property and stamp the moment with things like pet names or routines, or ceremonious acts, special meals prepared together, places that you go together, experiences that belong only to you as a couple, nightly comfort rituals that make it impossible for you to sleep ever again after they are gone. You know what, guys? It's 4 30 in the morning. Guess who's still awake? And it's been almost a year later. This is the new normal. Yeah, I don't sleep. So um, (laughs) all of this stuff that they do creates a kind of ever presence, meaning that regardless of how much time or distance, the sensory markers will remain to keep you a prisoner for life. Gosh, I hope that's not true. Um, Yeah, but that's the idea here. During this idealization phase, they adore you. They adore you because of how you make them feel. It's not about you. It's about how you make them feel. And they are enlivened by all the heady rush and excitement of a new coupling. They bask in it, splashing in all the sparkling waters of your love. It feels so good to be treated like the god that they think that they are recognized as the saint they profess to be and wallow in the delicious fuel that gushes from you with unfettered abandon. Yes, it's true, but as time passes and as the this new mate loses some of their shiny luster because of the really shitty, selfish thing that they do from time to time in a cyclical, intermittent reinforcement kind of way, they will inevitably see less blind devotion and instead see more questions and doubt coming from you. They see it in your eyes, in your face. They don't just leap in, you don't just leap into their arms anymore or into the bed with the same amount of enthusiasm after watching them flirt with the barista, indulge in porn more than they indulge with you, and tell these tiny little lies about everything, like where they were. And they show countless other little signs that the devaluation stage has begun. And that's the second cycle we just mentioned, devaluation Your lack of complete attention, affection, and adoration will spark their discontent. They must have fuel, high-quality fuel from somebody who's just absolutely blown away by them. And if you're too bruised and battered to provide that quality fuel, they're going to quietly start searching for your replacement. Before long... You're going to become an object of contempt. They begin the hunt for someone who does does recognize their magnificence. You burst all their bubbles with your so-called reality checks and you piss on their parade with your endless questions and doubts. How dare you? Who do you think you are? They have given you the best months, years, whatever, of your petty little life. So, why don't you hold them up in the same way you did in the beginning? Now you're just a grumbly, bumbly inconvenience with no appreciation or respect for someone who gave you the stars and the moon and the universe on a silver platter all gift wrapped with a bow and glitter. (laughs) Yes. Poor, poor narcissists. They ponder why do all of these people that I'm so good to? I'm so perfect for. Why do they all turn out to be such a disappointment? That's what they say. And as the devaluation stage progresses, you can do very little, if anything, right. The narrative begins as a pity play with colleagues or family members, and it grows as they convince everyone, including their therapist and their 12-step sponsor, that you it's you who are truly the selfish, wretched harpy that's intent on making their life miserable and abysmal and doing this for everyone, to everyone. You're, you're the problem. And as you scramble and panic and try to turn things around, you look more and more unstable. Thus, proving their claims must be correct. You truly are a troubled soul in need of help. They become the holy, blissful martyr. Uh, Remember that literary reference there? They become this holy, blissful martyr. uh, Canterbury Tales, by the way. Sacrificing themselves for the greater cause while you are cast into the abyss and branded um, with all of the blame. All of the blame. You get it all. Narcissists can never admit they are wrong or take accountability for anything. They possess the gift of spin, and they will play the victim by blame-shifting and pointing the finger at you-know-who, yours truly. Everything becomes your fault, as each and every crime that they ever committed against you and the relationship is heaped upon you, thereby allowing them to dance away, to just moonwalk into the sunset, With no guilt, no remorse, no accountability, and everyone hated what you did to them. Everybody's gonna hate it. They're gonna hate what you did because you're gonna be the bad guy in this story that they have written. Mm -hmm. The worst part is that they actually believe that you are to blame, as they are very skillful at revising. The history of your time together. Revision of history. Remember that, guys. It's a thing that they do. They all do it. They revise history. And then they believe the new revisionist version of what really happened in reality. By the time they are finished with their new and improved version of everything, nothing is going to resemble the truth of what really happened. And then you You know, you walk away with all the blame. Meanwhile, they have secured a couple of potential candidates to be your replacement, each one eagerly surrendering themselves and excited at the potential happy ever after that will ensue if you, mean and terrible you, would just be removed from the equation and get out of the picture. Go on. Head on down the road already. I'm next. You're gone. You're history. Move on. He laughs at a funny little text she sends as he sits across the dinner table from you. He exchanges sexy promises while you make his dinner. He texts her something naughty and spicy as you climb into bed beside him. We all know what happens next, right? If this is going on, we know what happens. Has to happen. Why are you always working, he says. Some people know how to play and have fun. You don't, he says. All you ever do is look at the dark side. I like people who are hopeful and optimistic, he says. You are always on technology. We don't spend enough time together like most happy partners want to do with each other, he says. The triangulation has begun. Some subtle criticism um where he starts picking um at things, and it's like um it's it's dished out with remote references to what other better partners would be doing for him if he could just get rid of you because you can do nothing right there is you know what is charming and uh that. That charming and adorable guy who seems to think that you just hung the moon, he's gone. You don't get any acknowledgement or appreciation for anything that you do. You may even invest more time trying to improve your lives, get a fresh start, change jobs or homes, make extended vacations. But no matter what you do, no matter what you do, regardless of any drastic measures you take to restore that illusion of intimacy. There will be none. There will be none. When did you fall from grace? Well, were there inherent flaws in the relationship all along, you're thinking? Is it you who failed to measure up? What could you have done differently to get a different outcome? Did they ever love you? How can you live without them? Will they ever acknowledge the truth? Did I fail to love them enough? Why couldn't I fix them? Are they happy with my, with their replacement that they replaced me with? Do they remember anything about our time together as a couple? You know what, guys? So many questions. They go in loops around and around and on a, on a merry-go-round in your mind. And there are no answers. Mm-mm. You know, there's there's not. Seduction is one of the most stunning features in a relationship with a narcissist. It is powerful and expertly executed so that you cannot refuse. You cannot resist. But it is only one of several stages in the narcissistic cycle of abuse. As you approach the end, you will find it impossible to reconcile how that person at the beginning is the same person that is now sitting across the room glaring at you with such contempt and hate and disgust. It's just not even possible. Twice in the last year before my narc ex discarded me, there were poisonous cottonwood snakes in the garage. I have come to think that they were coming for their master. Anyway, I screamed and hovered and had my phone trying to take pictures and record the event, but he came out and he said things like, please be quiet, you are frightening it. It's not going to hurt me. We understand each other. He knows I'm trying to help him. He said that as he was wrangling this poisonous snake, six foot long, eight foot, I mean, this is a huge snake. Narcissists don't show any true authentic emotion. And at the time, I marveled at how gently and fearlessly he handled the snakes to put them in the bag. He put them in a gym bag, and then he drove them to a safe location. Now I understand that he identified with the serpent. They were both predators. Duh, right? Both predators? I missed that. (laughs) Both poisonous and deadly both of them capable of shedding their skin and being born into a new iteration of themselves, both of them deceptive and dangerous. Well, you know what? The serpent has been known for seducing the vulnerable, unsuspecting, ever since biblical times. And you know what? Some things just never change. So the message for this today, beware, be careful, be gone. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.